Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Local Zero. We'll still be releasing our full episode at its usual time, but as many of you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC for short, has just released a new report that addresses the most up-to-date understanding of the climate system and climate change. So almost all of the news outlets have had something to say about the sixth assessment report. And so we felt the need to chime in also and consider what this means for local climate action. I'm glad to say I'm joined by my esteemed colleagues, Rebecca Ford and Fraser Stewart. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hello. Hey, hey, Matt. How are we doing? Yeah, I mean, good. My brain is literally exploding. Well, not literally. Uh, no, that's good, yeah. <laughs> it's not literally that. exploding. <laughs> it feels like it's literally exploding <laughs> when I consider everything that is in this report and what it actually means. Yeah. And I think I'm on a bit of a roller coaster ride of emotions. I think that's fair to say. Fraser, similarly up and down. Uh, I'm more more up, but not necessarily positively. I I feel furious. Mm. I just furious, determined. Um, determination sort of underpinning it, but just okay. furious. We knew this was coming. We knew what the content of this was going to be, um, but seeing it reflected back and knowing the endorsement that it has from so many of the people ultimately yeah. responsible for what's happening is just, oh, it's it's enraging. Okay, raw fury. Raw fury. Raw, channeling raw fury. Yeah. So we should say for our listeners, uh, those who don't know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, is basically drawn together the evidence base um, across a, a, a wide range of topics related to climate change. But this particular report spells out uh, the state of the climate emergency. Where are we in terms of climate change? How many degrees warming? And crucially, what the future looks like. And it doesn't look great. You know, picking apart the, the report, there's some you know, extremely interesting points to be made. I think for me, what kind of came out more obviously than anything else is that even if we act today, get our act together, we're still looking at about 1.5 degree change in average temperature versus pre-anthropogenic climate change. So 1.5 degrees, guys, doesn't sound much. It doesn't. It doesn't. And I know a lot of people will often think, oh, you know, it's a bit chilly up here. I could do with warmer temperatures. But that that's not what it's about, is it? What that actually means is what we're going to see more of is 
these extreme heat events, which aside from being incredibly uncomfortable, have caused huge amounts of devastation across swathes of the world. I mean, with the raging wildfires, I mean, that's been absolutely, you know, just mind blowing how much of that we've seen this summer. More heavy rains, more flooding. Yeah. And none of this is good news. No. So, I mean, there were some really interesting kind of frequency stats that came out about how likely extreme weather events were. So they did a really useful summary where they said, you know, if extreme heat that happens once every 10 years under sort of pre-warming, pre-human warming uh, era, that under 1.5 degrees would happen four times every decade. Do you know what, Matt? I think we need you. I think we actually probably need to do like a two-hour episode for you to distill all the findings because <laughs> I read the same charts as you did. Look on the net. <laughs> Look on the net. But 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 that but this the thing that hit my jaw hit the floor right was where if you got up to four degrees warming, so we're already at one point one. Okay, if you got up to four degrees warming, that event which would happen once a decade would happen on average every year. That extreme heat event, and the similarly scary stuff around rain, you know, rainfall and flooding, but but it doesn't look good. It really is kind of end of the world stuff. Sea level rise as well. If we don't check stuff two meters by the end of the century, again, doesn't sound like much if you're living on a hill. But if you're in the Maldives or Bangladesh, this is this is serious stuff. This is your community. This is your home. This is your livelihood. Yeah. So Fraser, you you were uh, all over the press, media, TV, radio, you name the format, you're on it. Now, what was the key messaging that you were trying to get out there around this? Because obviously there's a lot of science that's saying it's scary. We know the the link between human action and climate change is severe and it's real. So what what next? What do we do now? Well, I think there's two parts to that, Matt. There's two parts. So the, the messaging that, that I was trying to get out around that and something that I'm glad that people picked up on is obviously the IPCC tries to stay neutral. It tries to deal with the physical stuff, but it doesn't necessarily extend into what are the human impacts, the social impacts, which we know as people who have been researching this stuff for a while now or adjacent to this for a while now, you're talking about mass refugeeism. You're talking about death in lots and lots of places. You're talking about huge health impacts. You're talking about lower income areas specifically bearing the brunt of all of this around the world and here as well. So when we talk about the inequalities and who's going to feel these impacts that the IPCC outline, that's not a million miles from home. You're talking about 140,000 households in Glasgow, millions more across the UK. We're seeing it in Greece. We're seeing it in Turkey. We're seeing it everywhere just now. So it's important to remember that when we're talking about these huge global implications, it shouldn't have taken this long. It shouldn't have needed it to be on our doorstep for people to for people's ears to prick up as they have now. Um, but that's that's something that's going to affect us, and it's going to affect us even more, like you say, Matt, very, very shortly. The other side of this is, and it feeds back to what I said right at the very, very beginning, is something that I find so infuriating about it, is that we know it's not a failure of technology. It's not a failure of you rinsing your dishes before you put them in the dishwasher. It's a failure, broadly speaking, of policy, of accountability that's seen us careering towards this, not just 1.5 degrees, which Paris Agreement set out before, but careering towards that 10 years prior to when we said we could really afford, afford to do it. So I think we have a big issue with accountability. And this, for me, brings it back to the importance of the local, of the community. When we talk about local and community action, it's not just about making those little changes to emissions, important as those are. We know from the episodes that we've done with, with the Bowling Green, with South Seeds in particular, 
that these local climate action, local climate spaces are great spaces for building political action, building solidarity, for forming the coalitions that we ultimately need to hold leaders, to hold, whether that's fossil fuel companies, whether that's governments, local governments, to account to demand better and make sure that they're putting in the effort as well. So it's not just about acting locally, it's about acting locally in service of this bigger need for collective action as well. Becky, accountability, action. Mm. Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, I agree with Fraser. I think that the timing of the report is really, really important so that these messages are absolutely amplified. Like we can't forget that it's a cop year. It's happening in Glasgow, but it's happening in the UK and there's a real opportunity for this report to, to feed into that. I think that's critical. I think that there's more to be said as well for what can happen in the locals. So um, there was a great report that the Place-Based Climate Action Network or PCAN published uh, earlier this year. And they were looking at what's happening, you know, across local authorities, because local authorities in the UK are really, you know, taking strides forwards with um, declaring climate emergencies and developing climate action plans. And one of the things that, that they found was that actually, whilst we're seeing you know, 80% declaring climate emergencies, they haven't, not not all of those have updated their climate action plans. And where they have, they don't tend to focus on adaptation measures as well as resilience. They don't focus as much on yeah. just transitions and this kind of inclusivity. And I think what we're seeing is that these climate events, these severe events, which are going to happen more frequently, have the potential to impact more vulnerable communities more than more affluent communities. They have the potential to um, to really devastate lives and we need to be doing more, not just to kind of protect those that need it most, but also to be today putting in measures that can yeah. you know, help us to live with this future that is going to happen. We need to be mitigating it, but we also need to be adapting our infrastructure, adapting our societies to be able to deal with what's it's coming. It's a really valuable point. And, and one that probably isn't made frequently enough is that warming is happening these more extreme events are happening. You just have to turn on the news, see what's happening recently in Greece and Turkey, what's happened in Germany with floods. And we, we have to accept that even if we get our act into gear, this is what Glasgow and COP26 will all be about, putting words into action. Even if we do that and we accomplish it, 1.5 degrees is about as good as it gets. And we know even at 1.1 degrees, this is frightening stuff. So adaptation very much at the forefront, I, I would say. Yeah, every, every fraction of that counts. Like you say, Matt, it doesn't sound like a lot, 1.5 degrees, 1.1, 1.15. Any of that, it all matters. That's that's life and death for, for hundreds of thousands, millions of people. A question to you both would be, if you were to read the IPCC report in isolation, you can imagine a lot of people would go full ostrich mode, head in the sand, it's happening. There's very little I can do about it. I'm just little old me. How do we avoid that kind of mass apathy and and sort of, decoupling from reality and get people to actually stand up and say, I'm part of the fight. I'm going to do what needs to be done and to start to galvanize action. And it must be about visioning for the future. How, how do we do that? How do we bring people along? Well, I think, you know, Fraser's made a really good point earlier around working with communities and getting engaged more and more. So I think that often when we start to think about what can I do, we think about, do I insulate my home? Do I change my car? Do I switch out my heating? But there's a lot more we can do with, you know, our voices, our advocacy measures, our political positions. So I think that, you know, coming together and getting out and getting more engaged and aware and building that community that is interested in and embedded in this subject is absolutely key. But I think that it also needs to happen 
at kind of all levels of society. So it can't just be about individuals. I think that our local organizations have a huge role to play here and to play in partnership with community groups to mm. get our communities ready for this. Fraser? I think, yeah, no, I echo that completely, Becky. I think that's absolutely spot on. It's thinking more about ourselves, not necessarily as consumers, but as, as citizens, as part of a collective as well. I would also add that I think I, I appreciate that sentiment and I, I struggle with the despair of it all as well. But I guess remembering that it will not fix itself is, is important. It's going to take people standing up. It's going to take people sort of resisting the, the the processes that lead to it and remembering also that there are there are people with names and jobs and like real life people who are behind this who are either putting the blockers up to try and prevent the action that needs to happen or who are out there to be convinced to talk to to have those conversations with so remembering that it won't change itself and the only way that it will change is if we start to whether that's building locally, emailing, getting in touch with your elected representatives, lots of little social political things that we need to do as well. But how do you light that fire? So how do you do you attract people to a brighter, happier, fairer, greener future? Mm-hmm. That's one way of doing it. And I, I would argue that's an important part of it. Yeah. What I think we've started to see, particularly this summer, uh, with all the big events going on abroad, the climate catastrophes that we've seen happen, I think people are starting to get scared. And I'm glad, I'm not glad this is happening, but I'm glad people are starting to sit up and take note because I think that, in in my view, is when people start to take real action. I'll give you an example close to home. Um, I was driving around the weekend past, heavy, heavy rain showers as we've been experiencing over the last few days. And I got to the Clyde Tunnel. For for those of you who, who aren't in Glasgow, this passes underneath the Clyde that runs right through Glasgow. And there was torrential rain flooding. And as I entered the tunnel, I thought, this is the wrong call. That's going to be flooded. Um, and and uh, you honestly, and you saw that, that everybody's slowing down. And, and as I was getting in, I was genuinely petrified. I thought I've made the wrong decision. And I thought then actually the reason I'm feeling this is because of climate change. I wouldn't normally have this kind of, this anxiety. And so I hope in my, again, in my view, that the IPCC report gives that that foundation, that scientific evidence where people can sit up and look at these events on the news and draw a line between, between wow, that's scary, and that was climate change, that was us. And I, I think the one thing that I really need to get my head around is, is reading it in isolation is probably not a good idea <laughs> because it does make you feel very negative and you start to focus on the problems and not the solutions. And so for me, it's about not just what it says, but how we interpret that, how we take that information and what we do with that information in our individual lives, in our you know communities and through our, our policymakers. But of course, we could carry on and talk about this probably for hours. Yeah, we could, yeah. And we shouldn't. Yeah. Um, and one of the until, reasons- Until we the sh- next report from the IPCC. <laughs> <laughs> but we will be digging into this in a lot more detail in our next full episode and that's going to be released on the 26th of august and we're going to be chatting with this not just amongst ourselves but with alice bell who's the author of the book our biggest experiment a history of climate change and she's also the co-director at the climate change charity possible so can't think of anyone better to help walk us through this in more detail Produced by Bespoken Media.